This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free and I highly recommend it. That's www.maxbmw.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Twelve thousand miles in a tuk-tuk, three thousand miles riding a motorcycle around the Black Sea. She rode a Euro motorcycle in Russia in the winter in the Arctic, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and into a remote part of India where shamans fly at night, Yetis still roam openly, and sacrifices are made for the gods. Antonia Bolingbroke Kent, she has the stories coming up on this episode. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Googletech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. You know that feeling when you stumble across a place that um, you just know that few people have ever seen? It's intoxicating. And it's also rare because we have so much available to us on the internet now. But there are those adventurers that seem to be willing to put it all on the line to find something that is relatively unfound. And today we have one of those. Antonia Bolingbroke Kent is one of those rare travelers that seeks out those sparsely visited areas and then goes through extraordinary effort to get there and bring back the stories of her adventures. She has ridden over 12,000 miles in a tuk-tuk, 3,000 miles around the Black Sea on a zebra print motorcycle, the Russian Arctic on an old Ural, the Ho Chi Minh Trail on a Honda step-through, 
and deep into India's relatively unknown northeast corners exploring by motorcycle. She's danced with shamans, watched sacrifices, walked in the jungle with tribal chiefs, gold miners, and bomb disposal experts. And she's also a TV producer, and in her spare time, no idea how she finds that, she does some public speaking. Hello, well, my name's Antonia Bolingbroke-Kent. I'm from the UK, Bristol to be precise, and I'm an author and a TV producer and uh, someone who's very fond of doing solo journeys in remote parts of the world on two wheels. Antonia, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Author, TV producer, and you said adventure before. Describe what is it an adventure? I hesitate in using the word adventurer, but it's kind of, it's become quite a, a, I guess, a well-used phrase over here to describe someone who um, goes off on a lot of adventures and vaguely attempts to make some sort of living out of it. (laughs) So is that the the defining part there when you try and make a living out of it? Uh, Yeah, I think that's the defining part is uh, because obviously, you know, we are humans, are adventurers and explorers by nature um and everyone's hopefully doing their own adventures all the time whether they're big or small but it's when you're trying to actually scrape together a living out of it how do you describe adventure how would you define it i think adventure means different things different people but um i think it's anything that makes you uh, step outside your comfort zone and do something which you wouldn't normally do um, and makes you kind of push your own boundaries. And for some people, an adventure is literally going to be camping at the end of their garden for the first time. Um, but for others, it's going to be climbing K2. Um, but just anything that pushes your boundaries really makes you get out there and do something new and different. Yeah, it's interesting when it comes to defining adventure, because like you're saying, you know, you could camp in your own garden and that would be an adventure in your backyard. For some people, it's not any less of an adventure. It's just that we, in particular with the internet nowadays, we see all the extremes of everything. And when you see the mm. extreme adventures, they, they can often make your adventure pale in comparison, but it's no less an adventure because it's all in the mind. It's all relative. And, and, and also, I really think that adventure is anything that makes you come alive you know and that could be uh swimming in a in a in a river or it could be riding a motorcycle it could be uh you know it's so many things but anything that makes you like that 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 wonderful and sometimes rare feeling of feeling intensely alive and in the present that's an adventure what was the spark for you what what got you going on it um i think i was always um you know, I grew up in really rural uh, Norfolk in the east of England, and I had a very sort of free childhood. I was always roaming the countryside and climbing trees and being a real tomboy and always wanting to know what was around the next corner. Um, and I you know, always knew when I was at school that I never wanted to have a sort of conventional job. I wanted, uh, wasn't interested in uh, money. Well, not, not interested, but I wasn't motivated by money. I wanted something um, that allowed me to travel. Um, but really it all started on a dark December night in 2005 when my best friend 
phoned me up and said, so, hey, do you want to drive a tuk-tuk from Bangkok to England? And uh, I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so that's what started it, really. And then um, we did this did this great adventure, driving 12,500 miles in our pink tuk-tuk ting-tong. That has to be seriously oversimplified. I mean, she phones you up and, and, and throws this adventure out there and you just jump at it? Well, well, yeah. I mean, it, there is a long story behind it, which I'll shorten greatly. And that this is my, I was like 27 at the time. We'd been best friends since we were 12. And my friend had had a very um, dark period in her life of mental illness. And uh, she recently recovered. And this was a kind of like, I am better. I'm back. Let's do something to celebrate that and to raise money for mental health charities. Um, so, yeah, I kind of thought, you know, life's for living, isn't it? Let's do it. Sold the job and the cosy flat in London. Let's go. So this was driving a tuk-tuk? Yeah. What so, is a tuk-tuk? Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what a tuk-tuk is, it's a three-wheeled um, Thai taxi that you um, see sort of honking and clattering around the streets of Bangkok. And they're really designed to go a few miles and not designed for sort of pan-continental marathons. But uh we uh, we got this tuk-tuk specially made for us she was bright pink she was called ting tong and uh she was a right trooper she got us all the way back to england with only a few grumbles along the way and this sort of set you up for you know you think well this is this is an amazing experience what, what is it about that trip that sort of sparked it just i think doing you know, anyone who's done a, done a long road trip and sort of crossed loads of international borders and seen the world change under your wheels rather than just getting on an airplane and, and flying somewhere, it's a really transformative experience. And, and that first time that you get out there and you're sort of really throwing yourself into the unknown and you're taking risks, you're doing something that's completely different, uh, you really experience the... Um, the kindness that's out there in the world you know it's it's very it's just a very magical experience and uh it's very hard to go back to a normal job after that why is that so odd to us because we go through our life you know and say in our local areas we deal with people that are nice all the time but for some reason we picture the world as this scary bad place when all it is is a collection of small areas you know sort of together you could look at it that way as well why is it that we, we are so surprised when we go out and find what you found? I think, well, I think it's because the media, you know, if you read the papers all the time, the media is always writing about terrible things that are happening and murders and political disasters. And, and the route we took, we were going from China into Kazakhstan. And at the time, this was like 12 years ago, and Kazakhstan was a sort of big scary unknown place ending in Stan and we kept getting emails from people we didn't know saying don't go to Kazakhstan it's so dangerous you'll get you know raped and murdered and your tuk-tuk will be impounded by the border guards and you know we had all these sort of images that it was going to be this terrifying place and yet when we got there what happened was that the border guards gave us ice creams and money for our charitable cause and all they wanted was a photograph and mm. that was kind of what happened all the way really um, so it's when you kind of get out into the world and experience it for yourself that you realize that most of the media is just a load of rubbish. 
don't believe it. <laughs> we often do that. We, we, we say, you know, the media, it's the media giving us stuff. But the fact of the matter is, it's because that's what people want, isn't it? If they cover, yeah. you know, the bake sale and the kittens that are born in, in Billy's barn, <laughs> nobody wants to hear it. They want to see the gore. They want to, they want to see the, the spectacular stuff. And because I, I always think that's important to point out that the media is feeding what people are asking for, what they're, they're responding to. Mm. When you discover for yourself that the world is sort of not as it's presented to you. How does it change your outlook on adventure? Um, I mean, I think adventure is, and doing the sort of travel we, we do, is, is actually really important because every person who goes out there and um, realizes that people in countries they thought were, you know, bad and scary are actually totally the opposite, and they come back to America or England and spread that message, then it's a real force for the good. You know, we're all becoming kind of global ambassadors in a way. So the more of us that can go on these adventures and spread the good word that actually the people in Palestine or Tajikistan or Kazakhstan are actually incredibly friendly people, the better, really. Yeah, instead of watching the news for information about countries, we should be reading travel blogs, you know, and, and even just listening to shows like this, for instance, so you get an idea from people who have actually been there with a sort of an objective eye. Exactly. I mean, like I travel a lot in Central Asia. My boyfriend and I have a, a expedition company and we take motorcycle expeditions in Central Asia. And we funnily enough had quite a lot of Americans um, traveling with us. And a few of them in particular have been really, really sort of they sign up for it because they want the adventure. But then they get really cold feet and they get really nervous. And, oh, my God, am I going to get shot and kidnapped and murdered? And the Taliban going to take me? And then they have this really transformative experience and they realize that, that's not true at all. And they go back to their home in America or Canada and tell people what the truth is. When you were going along in your talk talk, your, you and your girlfriend, um, were you believing what, what was said to you? Were you were you looking at those emails and feeling a little scared as you approached the border? Yeah, we were. I mean, we were young and it was our first big adventure and and we knew nothing about Kazakhstan. And, and you know, all we knew was really these emails we were getting and uh, so I remember having really sleepless nights driving through northwestern China, getting up to the border. And uh, but, it, you know, it's a real lesson that, you know, don't believe what everyone tells you. <laughs> I guess that is it, isn't it? I mean, that you know, it's the juxtaposition between the two that make it so profound in the end. Yeah. Where did you lose the third wheel and, and end up on motorcycles? Ah, so, um, good question. So when my friend and I were um, preparing for this tuk-tuk trip, in order to uh, drive the tuk-tuk through China and get all the necessary paperwork, which is very complicated for a foreigner to drive their own vehicle through China, we were told we had to get our motorcycle license. So, like, I'd never thought about motorbikes before, and suddenly I was being told I had to get my motorbike license in the next three weeks um, in order to get this paperwork. Uh, so I did. I got my got my test. God knows how. Uh, in the UK? And then kind of in the UK, it was like February, it was snowing. I'd never <laughs> considered bikes before. And suddenly I was kind of navigating this, you know, 500cc bike around the snowy lanes of Norfolk. And um, uh, and then I sort of came back to bikes after the tuk-tuk trip. I thought, hey, I've got that license. And I kind of enjoyed that. So that's how it all started. And then, and then I started small. I got into uh, Honda Cubs. And I became just, and still am, a total Honda Cub fanatic. 
And, and you ride that for a while, I guess. And then you think, hey, I can take this somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, my boyfriend and I both got them at the same time and we uh, painted them. We got a pair of them. We painted them leopard print and zebra print. <laughs> and uh, we thought, oh, let's go around the Black Sea. And so we did that. Um, and yeah, one thing led to another. Then I went off on the Ho Trail. And uh, yeah, so Honda Cubs, great adventure bike, the best adventure bike. You you went to uh, Honda will love you for that of course uh, it makes me think of the uh, <laughs> of that ad, that famous ad from the sixties which I'm too young to really know it um, but uh, the famous ad about uh, you meet the nicest people on the Honda that was the Honda yes. Cup yeah well it's so true oh my god it's so true people really warm to Honda Cubs because they're um, they're kind of small and they've got a sense of comedy they've got character. Uh, they're kind of indestructible, they're idiot-proof, and they're like ubiquitous in so many parts of the world still. Uh, yeah, there's something kind of, you know, lovable about them. It's surprising how tough they are. You hear people all the time talk about, we've had a number of people on the show that have driven uh, to travel on the Honda Cubs or, or something similar, and I'm always surprised at how, how tough they are. As a matter of fact, I saw a post there on Facebook uh, not long ago where they had um, pictures of, um, and we put it up as well, uh, pictures of loads on uh, bikes. I don't know if they were Honda Cubs, but they were knockoffs of Cubs. And it's incredible what they're loading onto these vehicles. Incredible. I mean, honestly, I think you could um, drop a Honda Cub off a 20-story building, then run it over, drop it in a canal for a year, get it out, and it would still work. (laughs) So the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you took the Honda Cub there? Yes. Well, I I bought one out there. I'm always a fan, actually, of just buying local bikes and uh, I wanted to do what remained of the Ho Chi Minh Trail and Honda Cubs are kind of everywhere in Southeast Asia and it was cheap and it was easy to fix. So um, with the help of some friends in in Hanoi, um, I bought uh, a really cheap like 25-year-old Cub um, and painted it pink. And this sounds like I'm a really girly girl who loves pink and I'm, <laughs> I'm not, but pink's just funny and it makes people laugh. So uh, I had this like, very old, very pink Honda Cub called the Pink Panther. And off we went. What is the Ho Chi Minh Trail? Just describe that for someone who knows nothing about it. So the Ho Chi Minh Trail is um, a military supply route that was developed during uh, what we know as the Vietnam War, um, starting in 1959, going on to 1975. And it started as just a single footpath whereby North Vietnamese soldiers would walk through the jungles taking supplies to the communist insurgency against the South. And then it ended up being this like extraordinary 12,000 mile network that wound through Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And it was the way by which the North Vietnamese communists were able to send men and supplies to the American back South. And it was like the fulcrum of the Vietnam War. What made it um, such a, a great route of travel? Um, well, it was more just the just ingenuity, uh, determination and engineering genius of the North Vietnamese who built it. Because after the Americans became officially involved in 1965, it was being heavily bombed all the time. Um, I mean, parts of it in Laos were being bombed on average every eight minutes for almost a decade because the Americans were so intent on cutting the supplies. But every time one bit was cut off or bombed, the the North Vietnamese, often with teenage volunteers with just sort of pickaxes and shovels, would go and build a whole new section to get the supplies through. 
So that was what made it so incredible is, is the people behind it and their absolute um, dedication to beating um, America. And now the whole trail is still in operation? No. So uh, a lot of it was built through um, really uh, remote and dense mountains and jungle, very, very inhospitable terrain. Um, And at the end of the war in 1975, um, it was A, incredibly um, contaminated with UXO, um, uh, unexploded ordnance, and a lot of it just has been left to grow over. It's been reclaimed by the jungle. And so most of it has just disappeared really. Um, um, but there's still kind of main sections going through Vietnam and these little tracks going through Laos and Cambodia. So what I wanted to do is go and ride not only the kind of tarmac sections that remain in Vietnam, which have become quite popular with backpackers, but look at the old military maps and really do loads of research and follow it, what remained of it, through the sort of guts of the trail in Laos and Cambodia. So you're talking about something that has sections of tarmac and then right down to, to what size? Oh, God, right down to tiny, tiny, tiny tracks through the jungle, uh, which uh, are really just footpaths. And on either side, there's still loads of bomb craters. Um, there's still a lot of unexploded bombs. You know, I saw uh, houses that were built out of old bomb casings. I nearly stepped on a uh, UXO um, because there's still so much of it. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's it's it was a real... <laughs> adventure and very difficult to follow like i mean the unexploded bomb ordinance that's enough to turn off most people why would you want to risk that um i don't know i guess i like taking risks but not kind of and that sounds like i've got some sort of death wish i haven't basically the um there are a lot of uxo um clearance operators who are working in the region and a lot of Generally, where there's UXO is kind of clearly marked. There'll be red things down the side of the road saying, you know, don't go here, don't go there. Um, And in villages, there's bits which are safe and bits which aren't. Um, But it is a risk and still like hundreds of people still got killed every year in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia because of UXO. Um, But when I had this like near miss was really stupid because I had met up with these two American former pilots from the war and we'd gone on this mad mission into the jungle and we'd got overexcited trying to find something and we'd walked off the path and then nearly trodden on this cluster, cluster bomb. Uh, so that made me like not walk off the path anymore and not ride off the path. <laughs> when you say nearly stepped on how did you spot that? Well, we were walking through this very dry bit of jungle and in three of us in a row and I was at the front and just suddenly I looked down and this little rusted cluster bomb which is about the size of a tennis ball was about a sort of foot in front of my foot <laughs> so i stopped very suddenly and we all stopped very suddenly and backtracked wow so if you step on that that's it if you step on it they're they're still live um and you could be lucky and it might not have clicked into place and you know you might it might not go off but if it's live then everything within a 15 meter radius is gone 15 inch? 15 meter. So 15 meter. Wow. Yeah, that that can certainly um, deter a lot of people, including tourists, I imagine, for that area. Yeah, I mean, in the, as I said, on the the Vietnamese section of the trail, um, 
is really popular. You do a great ride from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh. It's just on tarmac. It takes a week. But like, I only know about two other people who've really followed it into into the main sections in Laos and in Cambodia. Um, and I didn't see any tourists on my whole trip. I didn't meet. I met one other foreigner in the whole trip. Um, and you know, I was going through really, really remote tribal regions where, I mean, I doubt if they had seen very many and in some cases ever seen outsiders before. Did you decide to do this trip by yourself? I did. I decided to do this trip by myself. Um, I, I just really wanted to do a trip on my own. And, um, I kind of felt that the tuk-tuk trip with my best friend had been amazing. We got on fantastically apart from her snoring, but otherwise we got on amazingly. Um, and, I just felt that it was really important. I had this real urge to do the journey on my own because I think having a companion really sort of cushions you from your fears. It doesn't make you really test yourself, face yourself, find out what you're capable of. Um, I wanted to do something that I totally immersed myself in where I was going and I had to sort of fend for myself, see what I could do. And I think when you do a journey on your own you find out a lot about yourself and you actually find out that you're capable of a lot more than you thought you were um so yeah i i I wanted to do it on my own (laughs) what was the plan when you're going so you've got a honda cub you're going to the ho chi minh trail what was your idea your objective so my plan was that i'd start in hanoi and i'd end in ho chi minh formerly saigon in the south so follow the route that the north vietnamese soldiers had walked and cycled and driven during the war um and i had done a lot of research i'd done months of research um and i had these old military maps and i had read lots of old books i'd spoken to veterans um both from the vietnamese and the american side um and so my plan was to to follow the trail um through the most interesting remaining sections and document what was left today um hear people's stories and uh, have a bloody great adventure while doing it. I just sort of have to go back to that. Do, do you consider yourself a brave person? Um, do I consider myself a brave person? Uh, I think I can be in some ways and I think I can be a massive wimp in others. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess I really like doing things on my own as well as I'm really sociable as well. But, um, I guess I can be brave, but yeah, I can be a massive wimp as well. Terrified of spiders and the dark. <laughs> Cause I think a lot of people listening to this would think there's no way I could do that on my own. Do you think they could? Uh, I think it's not for everyone. Um, I mean, I was really surprised. I was, uh, went down to the seaside with a friend of mine the other day and she was telling me that she wouldn't even go to the seaside here on her own. I think there's some people who just don't like doing things alone and who would be terrified and wouldn't like it. Um, but for me, I just think I get a lot more out of the journey. I'm totally in the moment. I'm not distracted by anyone else. Um, I meet more local people. I'm more immersed in it. And uh, yeah, I just get this inc- just real feeling of being intensely uh, alive and stimulated by it. Let's talk about the the Honda Cub for a minute that you prepped for this trip. Did you take the bike? Did you buy a bike there? And how did you go about prepping it? 
Um, so I bought a bike there with the help of some biker friends in Hanoi I'd met before and, um, they were brilliant. They, um, like just serviced it and sort of made it as good as it could be, even though it was 25 years old. Um, and really there were no modifications apart from the pink paint paint job. And I'd put a top box on it and a front sort of granny basket, um, to give me a bit more storage space. Um, and then off we went. And what was it like? Uh, so she, the Pink Panther, was fantastic. I absolutely loved her. She was very slow. meant I got to really take in my surroundings. <laughs> um, and Honda Cubs have a reputation as being indestructible. But I found out that the rigors uh, and the mud and the mountains of the depths of the Ho Chi Minh Trail um, – could even destroy a Honda Cub. I had like four engine rebuilds in in the in the course of the trip, um, but each one only took like a day to repair with a local mechanic and cost like fifty dollars. Um, the joy of a Cub. Uh, so yeah, she wasn't as reliable as I would have hoped. It did put my very basic mechanical skills to the test. Yeah, but like you say, fifty dollars for a rebuild. I mean, anybody can handle that. I mean, that's certainly. Uh, a big difference yeah. from what a, a different motorcycle could end up costing you. But when you got in there and you got away from things and the adventure really started happening, you must have saw some amazing stuff. Yeah, I mean, the particularly in, in Laos, Laos is the country that sort of affected me the most in terms of I just couldn't believe it, that I was riding through these very remote tribal regions which had been right on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, had been unbelievably heavily bombed and there was still so much war scrap hanging around and so much ordnance that literally these villages I was riding through were like living museums so houses would be built out of bits of crashed aeroplane um there'd be uh, a whole aeroplane just sitting in someone in a village uh people would be canoeing around in old cluster bomb casings on the rivers uh, there'd be cowbells made out of mortar fuses I mean just the sense of the war was was everywhere. I mean, that was really, really extraordinary. And also Laos is a place that's very rich in resources and was changing very fast. So I saw a huge amount of things like deforestation and tribal peoples being forcibly resettled to build dams and gold mines. And um, yeah, I felt like I was uh, seeing a lot of stuff which people very rarely get to see. So you mentioned deforestation, and, and so obviously there, there's a sort of a discovery here of um, some money in the land. Do they not have problems with the unexploded bombs as well when they're getting in there and starting to do mining and deforestation? Yeah, so th- these big companies, there's kind of a couple of big companies there who are doing all the sort of the dodgy stuff, really, and it's all sadly in cahoots with both the Lao government and the neighboring Vietnamese government. And so if uh, a, a big area is going to be... Um, logged or it's going to be uh, cleared for a, a mine they spend millions of dollars sending in UXO clearance teams first to clear it of UXO and then they take the forest or build the dam or do the gold mine or, or whatever it is You mentioned about the deforestation and the dams being built and the mining etc that is, that is starting to go on there and in particular in such a poor area where I gather from the sounds of it that there's not a lot getting fed back into the local economies no. and how that it's it's the rest of the world sort of drawing out of this area. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean particularly with the with the wood. I mean 
Laos is like 80% forested or it was 80% forested and it's um it's got really valuable woods like uh, teak and something called yellow balao um and what's happening with a lot of this wood is it's being illegally taken across the border to Vietnam falsely stamped certifiable you know sustainable wood and being shipped off to the west and America and Canada and ending up as our garden furniture um so you know we have we're all driving this this demand yet we're totally sort of ignorant of where that wood's coming from the impact it's having um and same you know with things like gold mining Laos got a huge amount of gold um and seeing the impact of these huge open pit gold mines in Laos and the fact that you know it's all we're all using it it's in our mobile phones it's in our computers it's in our wedding rings it's everywhere um and it really makes you think differently about your use of resources when you've seen massive destruction firsthand. You also ran into wildlife traders? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of wildlife poaching going on there. Everything from uh, pangolins to gibbons to tigers. Um, I didn't meet any wildlife traders myself, but I heard about it happening and saw that the jungles were just sort of denuded of wildlife, really. They were like hardly any Indo-Chinese tigers left. And, you know, when, when I stopped the motorbike every day, I mainly heard chainsaws. You know, I couldn't hear birdsong. That was really sad. Wow. Is that because you're you're near the trail, near activity, or is it just happening everywhere? It's happening everywhere. I mean, Southeast Asia is is really, really bad for that sort of thing. You know, both deforestation, I think it's lost 75% of its forest cover since the end of the war, and, and wildlife poaching is is really really bad in those uh, Cambodia Laos and Vietnam those three countries what are they using the wood for export I assume export money I mean like often I would you know I'd come across areas which were just decimated it was just such a tragedy to see just an area just like the sort of almost the surface of the moon just sort of burnt out tree stumps and I'd see often these big logging lorries going past me every day and I can't remember the exact figure now, but I worked out with the help of this NGO kind of what each lorry was worth. And it was, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of wood. It's, it's, it's you know, worth thousands of dollars per cubic meter. So all that money's going into a few wealthy pockets. And no work into re- reforestation, replanting, things no. like that? No. No. Yeah. I mean, there's a few NGOs trying to make an effort, but I mean, I... Uh, I'm not sure I could go back to Laos actually because I've heard from people there that it's accelerated so much in the last few years and you know you can see from Google Earth the images changing and deforestation and I just think it would break my heart. <laughs> what was the riding like? Oh wow, I mean the riding was, you know, I wanted an adventure and I sure got an adventure. It was <laughs> Well, I mean if you burnt out three engines you had to have been doing something extreme. Yeah, it was um very remote, very mountainous, you know, a lot of river crossings, a lot of steep inclines, um, lots of sort of rocks at times. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was challenging, really challenging, especially not on a dirt bike on a little Honda Cub with city tires. We hadn't been able to get dirt tires. So it was like kind of, you know, sliding around on ice a lot of the time. And there was quite a lot of uh, unseasonably early rain. I got incredibly stuck in the mud a few times. Uh, so it was it was tough riding. <laughs> but 
but exciting. <laughs> <laughs> While you're doing this, are you, are you passing other people? Are you seeing other people on the road or is it very remote? I mean, almost never. I mean, in Vietnam, yes, but once I got into sort of the depths of Laos, wow. I, I would go days where I didn't see anyone. Um, and then quite often, the only person I would see would be these... Uh, the only the best way of describing it is a moped supermarket in that these rural areas in Laos are so remote there's no shops so like enterprising Vietnamese ride illegally over the mountains with Honda Cubs loaded up with the most incredible amount of stuff like mattresses cooking pans shoes speakers and they ride into these remote tribal villages and sell them stuff and quite often I'd bump into these and the, I mean the middle of nowhere and uh, these, you know, in the middle of this array of pots and pans and speakers and mattresses would be some tiny Vietnamese man or lady um, in their sort of flip flops. And uh, I was like, they should be in the Paris Ducker. They are such good riders. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. You, you must see them after you've been having trouble with your little load and think, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was an embarrassment. They were they were really amazing. So you're traveling along by yourself and because you, you mentioned there a minute ago that you, you hardly ever see anybody. Doesn't that give you the feeling that you're in the wrong spot <laughs> when you're riding through and you don't see anybody? You're all alone in the jungle? Um, no, because generally there was only like one track. I mean, I did get pretty lost a few times, but, you know, generally each day I'd be like, right, I want to get to that village or that town this evening. Um, and, you know, I just ride along this track and, uh, uh, you know, I got there in the end. Stick around. We're going to take a short break and we're going to be right back, though, with more. We're going to talk about a uh, trip into India, um, which is very cool. Anyway, uh, before we do that, we're going to thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this show possible today. One of them is IMS Products. You know, it's it's not very often you come across things like this that you, you sort of get the best of both worlds. You you get to improve the handling of your motorcycle. You're buying something that's made in the USA that is a quality part. And IMS has been making parts for racers since 1976. You know, I, I read the other day that um, I think it's over the past two decades it said that virtually every off-road racer, every winning racer has used IMS products. That really says something. Well, they're foot pegs made by the same company, same durability. Um, drop by and have a look at the ADV foot pegs because they're made specifically for us adventure riders. They've designed them with what's called a watershed design. And that's just one of the aspects of it. The watershed design, um, what it does is it makes it so that the mud and crap doesn't stick in the pegs, actually designed to shed them. There's so much goes into the design of a foot peg. We've talked a little bit about this before. For instance, with an inexpensive peg, they'll often just make the peg bigger. Well, that doesn't work because it changes the geometry of your foot. So when you tilt your foot down to grab your shift lever or you push on your brake lever, all of a sudden the geometries change and you can no longer access things properly. A peg needs to be widened properly. Again, it's the type of thing you're only going to get with a company that puts a lot into their products. IMS is one of those companies... Warrantied for life, made in the USA, ultra strong. I'm running them now. I think they're absolutely fantastic foot pegs. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com, and make sure when you talk to them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.imsproducts.com. Well, do you know what a mo bag is? Well, if you don't, you're probably missing out. A mo bag is a, an extra small bag. I shouldn't say extra small, a small bag made by Off-Grid Moto. 
Off-Grid Moto is a small and dynamic motorcycle manufacturer located in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, these bags are made in the U.S., so when you phone up Off-Grid Moto and you talk to them, you're talking to the people that sew the bags. Now, imagine the difference that makes when you're talking with the people who are actually making the product right there. Actually, don't imagine. Drop by their website. Their website is www.offgridmoto.com. Look at their bags. The MO bag is a small bag that's designed to the Molly system, like all their bags are, which means it'll easily attach to anything that's sewn Molly, which is a military uh, spec spacing system. It'll go on a fender, and if you're lucky enough to have one of the off-grid Moto Chadwick panniers, yep, it attaches to those as well because they're also sewn to Molly. Everything they make is sewn to Molly, so which means it's all attachable and you can move it around and, and put things together and sort of make things into what you want it to be. They'll even go on top of a hard case. Now, they're designed to hold any sort of small gear that you've got, camping, for your bike, whatever the case is, but they're specifically designed for two one-liter fuel bottles, and I think this is a great way to add some distance to your tank. I like to carry the two extra fuel bottles for longer trips, and I can choose to fill them or not. I can run with them empty, or when they're full, I can use them for my MSR stove that burns gasoline. And if I'm not hauling the extra fuel, if I don't want those fuel cans in there, I can throw some pop bottles in there or some food. It's just so universal to have those small bags. I love small sort of ditty bags like that. But in particular, if they're sewn in a way that they can be easily taken on and off the bike. And since these have quick releases on them, they can be snapped on and off the bike easily. You owe it to yourself to look at what off-grid moto is making. They've got some really neat stuff there, and it's motorcyclists designing these things because of a need that they found for themselves. Trip by their website. It's www.offgridmoto.com. And when you do, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, www.offgridmoto.com. Your latest trip was to India, to a, a remote part of India, which you say that no one but locals seems to visit. It has no tourism industry, and, you, and you've described it as a sort of a wild land in the eastern Himalayas. Now, it's an epic adventure, which you wrote your latest book called Land of the Dawnlit Mountains about. And in the book, you talk about shamans that fly in the night and animal sacrifices and yeti footprints in the snow. What was it that made you head off to such a, a distant and almost mythic land in India alone by motorcycle? Uh, well, India is somewhere I've been quite a few times before, and I kind of thought I knew it. Um, but I heard through this guy, Abra, um, a sort of local contact I'd met through TV, about this very remote, hidden northeast section of India called Arunachal Pradesh, um, which is in the Himalayas. And uh, it had, for various reasons, been closed off to foreigners until the late 90s. Uh, you still had to get permits to go there. Um, it was just this really hidden land, this blank space in the popular imagination, which just no one went to. So, of course, I was like, right, I've got to go there. Um, so that was the plan, really. The attraction being that it's unknown, is that what it is? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I am really, I'm not someone who travels to, for any, you know, I'm not an ocean rower or a runner or a climber. I guess I'm driven by curiosity and I'm really, really drawn to those sort of, wrinkles at the edge of the map which people don't really know about and the fact that this place was um, really tribal again uh, that there'd been no books written about it for decades um, and you could almost not get proper maps of it in fact you can't get proper maps of it 
I mean, it's such a kind of obscure, untraveled region that uh, you know, even the best maps of Northeast India in the UK are just uh, nowhere near good enough. It's yeah, this bizarre sort of blank space in the popular imagination. So, so what do you mean, like with roads and things like that? Or are you talking about just a, a chunk of wild land? Well, it's very, very mountainous. Uh, it's very thickly forested. Most of it. It's about the size of Portugal. Um, there's more than thirty different tribal groups who live there. Um, there's very few roads and yeah, it's just because there's such huge areas of forest, a lot of it, which is unexplored. It's just kind of largely unmapped. Um, so I decided to go by motorbike, obviously, cause I love motorbikes. Um, but also because there was no way I was walking or cycling up and down those endless Himalayan hills. Um, but parts of it, where there were no roads, I just had to leave the bike somewhere and walk. Sometimes I was walking for two weeks through areas where there was no phone reception, no shops, no nothing. And I would take a tribal guide and just we'd walk through these amazing places and stay with local tribal families. And uh, my bike would have a little holiday. What, what do you see when you do that? What are you looking for? Um, well, this one particular place, I had read about it Um in that it was uh, believed by the Buddhists to be this magical um, valley, a kind of Shambhala, where apparently there were portals to other worlds and magical herbs there, which grew there. If you ate them, you could fly. You know, all these there are all these myths about this region going back to the sort of eighth century. Um, but it was also really legendary for being uh, incredibly difficult to reach and full of snakes and tigers and thick forests. So I was kind of, I, I was looking to see what was there and what the people were like there and t- to hear stories about the magic of the place. And uh, it was pretty far out. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking as you're saying that, yeah, it sounds like a perfect vacation destination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so was yeah. it was it all it was cracked up to be? Uh, you know, was it full of snakes and, and tigers? and? Uh, I heard lots of stories about tigers, but I didn't see any. And luckily, I went at a time of year when the snakes were in hibernation because there's a lot of very dangerous snakes there. Um, Was that on purpose? Yes, it was. Well, sort of on purpose. You know, various factors came into it, but it was kind of on purpose. Um, But uh, the the people there are Buddhist and they're from a Buddhist tribe called the Kampa. And I went with this local um, guide who was a... Well, he was a really strange combination of being like a monk and a politician. He was about 60 uh, and he spent most of his time sort of muttering Buddhist mantras and meditating. And he went everywhere in gold wellingtons. He was a very, very quirky character. And um, through his him translating and all his knowledge, I just heard all these mad stories about um, meditating goats and magical tigers and reincarnated Ted monks and yeah I, I kind of felt like I'd gone into some alternate universe <laughs> gold wellingtons for those who don't know are, are gold rubber boots <laughs> for people in North America gold colored I assume yeah gold colors yeah gold colored yes not made of solid gold that would have been right. quite heavy to walk through the mountains <laughs> of course <laughs> but yeah. so you you spend a, a couple of weeks walking to these remote places is you when you describe it as as sort of these fabled lands i would have thought there'd be all kinds of people wanting to go and they're searching for this but you found you're the only one there i mean i was the only the one there yeah 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 because it's really hard to get to like to even get to the village where i started the trek would take a week from the UK 
by the time you've flown and driven and driven and driven more. Um, and, you know, there's no phone reception. There's no – people just don't know about it for a start. But also most people just can't be bothered. They don't have the time and they don't want to travel somewhere where they can't plan it at all, where they have no idea where they're going to sleep every night, where there's nothing to do or buy or whatever. You're just – staying with people and uh, hearing great stories and ending up in these villages which are right up in the Himalayas with these beautiful Buddhist monasteries and um, yeah it was it was uh, yeah it was a very magical time um, but fortunately very hard to get to did you find any of it sort of um, or did all of it uh, live up to your expectations I mean, you're talking about things that make you fly and all these these things that are, you know, sort of sacred, right, for Buddhists. Was it? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely lived up to my expectations and I met a lot of people who had not only amazing stories to tell, you know, and people who themselves were believed to be reincarnations of, of powerful Buddhist monks who could tell me extraordinary stories about being young and be, being able to remember um, elements of their past lives and, and things like this and um, yeah it was a very strange place and there was a, a sense that it was very different and the people there seemed just extraordinarily content and joyful what kind of stories give us an example uh gosh um because you mentioned about the tigers, you said you heard lots of stories about tigers, for instance, and you, you didn't actually see any. But, you know, what are they telling you? What are these stories like? Also, I, like, I heard one story about um, uh, the two main tribes who live here. There's the Buddhist tribe and there's another tribe who live nearby who aren't Buddhist. They're, they're animist, which means they just worship nature spirits. And there was a story that these, this animist tribe had gone into a, a Buddhist um, temple in this tiny village one day and had been kind of taking the mickey out of the Buddhist rituals, like banging the drums and playing the cymbals and not respecting the Buddhist rituals. And uh, a week later, apparently, that six people from that tribe, uh, who were the people who had been in this uh, temple, were out collecting plants in the forest and they all got attacked and killed by this tiger. And the Buddhists believed that it was... Um, you know, it was revenge, basically. It was a kind of magical tiger that had been sent as revenge. So kind of just those sort of stories. And about, you know, I met uh, this uh, shaman in this very remote village who was telling me that a few years previously they'd had this pair of tigers attacking all the livestock in their village. And they didn't want to kill the tigers, so the shaman did this three-day ceremony. He went into a trance. He did all these rituals to basically banish the tigers from the village so they wouldn't come back. And apparently after that, the, the tigers never came back. They never saw them again. They never lost any more animals. So just strange village, strange stories like this. What's a bloody tribal gathering? Ah, uh, so I, um, there's a tribe called the Idu Mishmi, who I spent a lot of time with, who by incredible good fortune, when I was with them, they were having a very rare clan gathering in this tiny village up on the Tibetan border and uh, one of them said to me you must come you know come to this it's three days and it involves a lot of animal sacrifice and shamanic chanting um, so I went to this village and I spent three days there and it was awful lot of oxen and pigs being sacrificed by the shaman in order to 
guarantee good good luck for the tribe, basically. Um, and I'm a vegetarian, so <laughs> that was quite tough seeing that. I mean, they did eat all the animals, you know, the, the, the animals were killed and they were shared out and eaten by all the tribe. It was pretty brutal how they were killed, but it, you know, it made me think a lot about actually the way we, you know, industrialize and rear our livestock and the way our animals are kept and killed in abattoirs. It's probably actually a lot worse than that animal who's totally wild all its life. You're, you're speaking about the Western world, the way the Western world keeps them. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, we see it as more humane, but I think if I were a cow, I'd rather just be wild in the forest all my life and have a bad five minutes at the end rather than a miserable life in a cage and have a sanitized end. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think the same thing. So so this is the, the you, you've written a book about this called um, Land of the Donlet Mountains. Yes, which is what Arunachal Pradesh, which is the region I traveled through, directly translates as, as is Land of the Donlet Mountains. Would this have happened without a motorcycle? Um, you know, it could have. And I'd have done it on foot and it would have taken me about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> the bike was essential and it was a great bike. Honestly, I, I think I spent about 10 pounds on it in 3,000 miles. Just nothing went wrong. This is the hero. Yeah, it was. It was my hero. It really was. <laughs> So if, as far as bike prep then, so you're, you're going in, you, you mentioned you're buying local bikes. You're not doing that much bike prep. No. It's not, you haven't changed suspension, you haven't changed seating and all that sort of stuff. You're basically putting your bags on there and off you go. Yeah, I just take my own cheap, lightweight textile panniers and uh, get a top box locally or in the case of India, get one made and spend a couple of days just getting acclimatized and then go. I guess one of the huge advantages to that is you mentioned it didn't cost you all that much money to buy the bike. So if everything goes wrong, you can walk away from it. Whereas if you shipped over your, your big adventure motorcycle that was completely done up, you know, you're not going to want to walk away from it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also, you know, you're riding a bike, which everyone knows how to fix. You know, you take your hero, not that it needed it, but to any local mechanic in a town or in a runner child and people know what to do with it. They're not going to know what to do with uh, a Triumph Tiger. Do you think this is a destination that adventure motorcyclists should be considering checking out? Uh, yeah. My only the only the only thing bad about it in terms of riding a bike is that you can't do a loop, so you're going up and down these steep Himalayan river valleys. Um, so it's like I love the biking, but it, I guess it's not for everyone. I, I guess for me it was. I was driven more by the people I was meeting, the landscape, the stories I was telling than whether it was like an amazing riding destination. If you want amazing riding, go to Central Asia, go to Tajikistan. <laughs> <laughs> and are you always traveling when you travel by motorcycle by Honda Cub? Is that your choice of bike now? No, it's not actually. Like when I um, went, did my trip in India, which was um, in this very, very remote northeastern corner of India called Arunachal Pradesh, which is kind of at the very far eastern end of the Indian Himalayas. And there's no Honda Cubs in that region. So I wanted to do the same. I wanted to fly there and buy a local, cheap, simple bike. So for that journey, I used um, something called a, a Hero. Hang on, what's it called? It was called a Hero Impulse, <laughs> which is just a like 150cc, um, really 
cheap. It, well, it was a it was a kind of hybrid. It was it was kind of a it was kind of a dual sport, really, a kind of Indian version of a dirt bike, but not a proper dirt bike, but just a just a little like I paid three hundred pounds for it. Um, a one fifty cc, and uh, it was an absolute cracker. It was an amazing bike. So you're not worried about um, you know, shipping a bike from home when you go on adventures. You, you get something that's local. Yeah, I just think it's for me it's easier. Like shipping is really expensive, and I kind of like traveling on a local bike that people are familiar with. I think you seem a bit, bit less of an alien, and uh, just kind of seeing what happens with it. And, yeah, and I guess repairs and everything. Everything seems to be easier. What do you do about um, registering the bike when you're buying something local and you don't live there? I always have someone, I find someone local who is going to help me. So uh, in India, I started in a city called Guwahati. And through my TV work, I'd met someone from the Northeast. Um, and he was amazing, a guy called Abra. He helped me um, with lots of stuff to do with the trip. He helped me buy the bike and get it registered. And, and he's now got the bike. I gave it back to him. Um, so yeah, with, with local help is the answer. Mm, so you've got to get on a forum or something or try and work some contacts, Horizons Unlimited or something like that, and try and find somebody that can connect you with somebody local. No way around that. Yeah. And, and often it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's really, really important. I mean, I've been really lucky. My TV works often help me find those local people. Um, but you know what it's like, there's, you know, us bikers are such a friendly community and I think it's, you know, if you put the word out there that you need help in a biker community, wherever it is, you're going to find help. You mentioned that you have uh, a, a company, motorcycle tour company. Just briefly tell me about that. Yeah, so my boyfriend and I, a few years ago, we set up this company called Edge Expeditions. Um, and it was just born out of a shared passion that we have for riding motorcycles in um exciting locations um and really our focus has been on central asia so we run expeditions in tajikistan and in kyrgyzstan uh we're going to be the first people ever to run a motorbike trip in jordan next year uh because motorcycling has been illegal for foreigners in jordan until this year um so yeah we we love taking people to fantastic remote places and having a proper adventure what advice would you have for anyone else? Um, don't give in to your fears. Um, don't believe the media. And uh, just get out there and see the world and meet people and hear their stories and bring the positivity back. It's funny. It seems so simple because I ask that question a lot or variations of it. And it's invariably, it's the same answers over and over again. And yet it seems to be the things that hang people up the most from going. Yeah. Yeah. Fear. Well, I think so many people don't go because of fears and whether that's because of fear of going on their own or fear of leaving a job or financial fears or, you know, there's always an excuse. And I think in the end, you've got to just stop making excuses and just go. Uh, you're never going to regret it. Uh, just remortgage your house, sell something, you know, put it on your credit card, um, read, feel the fear and do it anyway. Just, just do it. <laughs> Facing the fear, does it help you deal with fear afterwards or does it change your outlook on fear? Sort of um, maybe make you more fearless, less fearful, I should say. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, there's a great quote, and I can't remember who said it, but it's something like, you know, fear um, is our companion on all our greatest adventures because kind of fear goes hand in hand with pushing yourself outside your comfort zone um, and doing something exciting like this. But I also think that the more you challenge your fears and realize that fear is not real, it's just a paper tiger, that the more you face your fears um, and realize they're not real, and then the less big and scary they become. Antonia, it was great to talk to you. We're going to post a a link to your website in the show notes for this episode and also um, list your books in there so that people can find out more about your adventures. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jim. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Antonia Bolingbroke-Kent. She's the author of three adventure travel books, and you can find out more about her at her website, www.theitinerant.co.uk. And of course, that link and more will be in the show notes. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. You know, if you've got a story, you think you have something that would sound good on this show, don't hesitate to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We've got what's called a sound out form. So you just go to adventureriderradio.com forward slash sound out, and you can fill out the uh, information there, and maybe we'll get your story on the air here with us. Remember, all our episodes are available for free. Just drop by the website and download them. And we have another show called ARR Raw. comes out once a month, and it's also on the website. You need to subscribe separately if you're doing that in your whatever uh, program you use for listening to your podcast. Make sure you subscribe separately. And before you go, if you like what we're doing and you want to help out, the show is built on a model of support and advertising to help make the whole thing work. So we have a support page set up at the website. 
www.adventureriderradio.com forward slash support. We have a bunch of different ways you can do it. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back as you. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on the Raw Show. And um, if you'd like, and we would love it, you can sign up for Patreon for a monthly support payment for it. And you can, you can put anything, you know, a dollar, $5, $20. It doesn't matter, but it makes a big difference for us producing the show. It means we can spend more time worrying about content, less time worrying about well, paying the bills. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Hi, this is Jonathan Hansen from the Overland Expo, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio.